Welcome to Out of Touchstone. My name is Mike DeKalb, and we've got a special episode for you right now. My co-host Chad Smart and I were able to chat with Marty Kaplan, who shares some terrific stories about his time working at Disney, where he started as a vice president with Touchstone Pictures in the mid-1980s, and then he moved on to be a writer and producer for the studio in the early part of the 1990s. Uh, he also talks about attending Harvard with some famous classmates, working on a U.S. presidential campaign, and then he goes into detail about his current position at USC and how he's using data to determine the way the media shapes people's views and perceptions. It's uh, fascinating stuff, and he was a lot of fun to talk with. We'll be back in two weeks to kick off Touchstone's 1993 slate of films, but for now, sit back and enjoy the interview with Marty Kaplan right after the theme music. Pleased to be joined here with our very first guest on the Out of Touchstone podcast. And you know, to be honest with you, Chad, we went to the top. I didn't want to just get anybody. We got somebody who should be able to tell us some great stories about Touchstone. He worked at Disney for many years, first as a vice president with Touchstone and then as a writer-producer for Disney. Along the way, he also worked in the Jimmy Carter administration. He's just a fascinating man. As soon as I found out who he was, I said, we got to get him on the show. So I'm pleased to introduce Mr. Marty Kaplan. Mr. Kaplan, how are you doing this evening? I am doing all the better for being on your podcast. Aww. Aww. <laughs> and that's, that's the so show. <laughs> <laughs> and scene. Yeah. yeah. Well, what's funny is, you know, we, we were just talking off the air before you joined us, and it seems like when you're an executive, a lot of times you don't get a credit in the individual films. Just about but, never. Yeah, and so you don't turn up on IMDb, and so I really pride myself on this podcast where whenever we do a film, I always look in who was the writer, who was the director, who were the stars, what have they done before, and how did they get this, how did they probably get the green light to make this picture? And so we went through all of the 1980s, all of these films that you were involved with, and yet your name doesn't pop up until 1992 with a movie called Noise Is Off. And that's when I looked at you. It's like, oh, he's a first-time writer. Who is this guy? And then I looked a little deeper and like, what? He worked for Jimmy Carter? Oh, he also worked at the... So I said, it just worked out that, you know, you're currently working with USC. And my wife is actually was working at USC as well. And she's like, just go in the directory. I'm sure there's probably a website. Maybe you can shoot him an email. And here we are. Here we are. Obviously, this is a Touchstone podcast, and I want to. You gave me a list ahead of time of about seven or eight different movies that you were an executive on. I'm going to want to ask you to go into each of those films just real briefly and whatnot. But before we do that, I just want to kind of get to know you a little bit, and we'll just start early. I, basically, where, where are you from, and where did you go to school? I, I, I think I read that you are originally from Newark, New Jersey. I'm from the same neighborhood that Philip Roth is from. Uh, it's called the Weekwake section, and it was. Uh, unrecognizable the last time I was there. But when he and I both grew up there, he's substantially ahead of me. It was essentially a lot of Ashkenazi Jews who, who had made their way uh, to a tiny neighborhood in Newark. And uh, I was, I lived there uh, until I was 11 uh, I went to public school, and then uh, my family moved to a nearby suburb called Union. And uh, I lit, went to public high school there, large public high school. We were 800 in our class. And then uh, went to, as an undergraduate, uh, to Harvard. And then uh, I got subsequent degrees uh, at Cambridge and then at Stanford. The Harvard degree was in molecular biology. I went there because I wanted to be a molecular biologist. And uh, the my AP bio teacher uh, presented J.D. Watson as a god and the idea who had won the Nobel Prize for the double helix with Francis Crick. And so I figured, why not just go right to the top? And I ended up uh, at the tender age of 18 working in his lab uh, at Harvard on messenger RNA, which turns out to have a current profile because of the way the vaccine is produced. 
and while I was at Harvard, I was also uh, on another track completely, which was the literary and entertainment tracks. Uh, I was the president of the Harvard Lampoon, the nation's oldest uh, college humor magazine. Uh, and uh, in that world, I came to know uh, a number of people who were ahead of me and behind me who really made huge marks in the world of entertainment. I was just uh, thinking, getting ready for this, uh, walking down memory lane. Uh, and I remember that uh, among the first people I met at the Lampoon when I joined as a freshman uh, were two guys named Doug Kenny and Henry Beard. And uh, Doug Kenny uh, became notorious for being one of the craziest stoned uh, out of his mind figures behind Animal House and Henry Beard behind Miss Picky. And they wrote Board of the Rings together and uh, any number. There have been documentaries made about uh, Doug and Henry. Uh, so they and behind me uh, at the Lampoon uh, was Jim Downey, who became the head writer for Saturday Night Live for about 15 years. I think he's still there, actually, <laughs> although he stepped down from being head writer. Uh, Ian Frazier, who is a, a New Yorker a humorist. Uh, so it was, it was a, a great time to be there. My biggest contribution to the Lampoon was that until I was president, it was an all-male organization, had been so for nearly a century, and I was the first officer to start the charge to make it co-ed, which it then became. Wonderful, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Chad was uh, was looking to see if you had worked with because I think a lot of the Simpsons writers, right? Is that what it yes, was? Yes, they all there? they all uh, uh, came after me. The, uh, the Lampoon was not a feeder to Hollywood or television until around my time, starting with one of my college roommates, Tom Werner, who became the Carsey Werner uh, name. And they produced Third Rock from the Sun and uh, 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 The Cosby Show, A Different World, uh, and, and a huge string of hits. He's now the uh, co-owner of the Boston Red Sox and the Liverpool Football Club. Uh, but that started a la- uh, Lampoon Hollywood pipeline, which only uh, got uh, bigger and bigger. Yeah, yeah I was kind of looking at other famous Harvard alums to see, like, where were, were they before you? Were they after you? You know, like Tommy Lee Jones. And I think you mentioned third rock. John Lithgow, I think, was a little Tommy bit. Tommy Lee Jones was two classes ahead of me. In the same dorm, uh, Dunster House, he was his roommate was Al Gore, and so I met them when I was a sophomore and moved into Dunster House. Oh, and in wow. fact, I worked on a, a production, a Harvard theater production of the Shakespeare play Coriolanus that Tommy Lee Jones starred in. So uh, I had a, a pretty a close look at him at the, the beginning of his career. Uh, on the other side of me was Al Franken, for example, uh, who, uh, before he was a senator, of course, was on SNL. Uh, and uh, in my house, there were always a few resident tutors and visitors. And the two that uh, I'm most fond of remembering, uh, one is Doris Kearns Goodwin, oh, the historian who at that point was working for Lyndon Johnson. Uh, and so she would be commuting from Cambridge to his ranch to, to work with him. And also Eric Siegel, who oh, was okay. the best known then for uh, being the author of the book of Love Story, uh, which was filmed at my dorm while I was there. And oh, wow. so, uh, and now the 50th anniversary shockingly of that movie is is being observed don't they don't they say that's supposed to be based on al gore i thought they, it, yeah, yeah well he he said that 
Yeah. Um, there, there were any number of other people who had a different point of view, including Eric Siegel. Well, I saw that the, in addition to the Harvard Lampoon, of course, listen, I'm going off Wikipedia, so I'm going to let you kind of confirm or deny that you were also involved with the Signet Society. Is that yes. Correct? Yes. The Signet uh, was uh, even older than the Lampoon. It was a student faculty uh, club you needed to be elected to, like the Lampoon, and it existed for the purpose of having lunch. And so every day at one o'clock, you could go to the Signet every weekday and be seated and have a lunch at which civilized conversations would take place. And it was meant to produce literary stars. When you were inducted into the Signet, you were given a rose. And when you published your first book, you were to give that book to the Signet Library with your rose pressed in it. And uh, and a, a who's who of American literary life uh, uh, belonged to it. Uh, at the Signet, uh, which also was all male, the only women were the undergraduates from Radcliffe who had their student work-study jobs as serving lunch at the Signet. And uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, stories is that among the Radcliffe women who served the Signet members uh, was Lucy Fisher, who later became the president of Warner Brothers. But she was not able to actually uh, be a member and sit down. And so I also as president of the Signet, made the Signet co-ed. So uh, I, in my wake, uh, according to some people, I ruined two institutions. <laughs> but everyone else is shocked to know that it was never not co-ed these days. Well, I thought I read that. I was looking at the list of famous alums who were in the Signet Society. I was looking at people that would have been around your time frame. And the two names that stuck out the most to me were Senator Chuck Schumer and Benazir Bhutto, which I was like the, the late prime minister of Pakistan. Yes. Pinky. Excuse me. Pinky. Okay. Pinky, Pinky was in Quincy House. Yes, indeed. I knew her. Uh, and Chuck Schumer was in my class. Uh, really? Yeah. And uh, uh, it's funny. Uh, I have told a story and then one, another one of my roommates tells the same story that after we were in college, uh, it was 10, 15, 20 years in each of our cases that uh, we crossed paths again with Chuck Schumer. And mm-hmm. the moment he saw me and the moment he saw my roommate, he instantly greeted us by name. Uh, so uh, clearly mm-hmm. at his core, he is a politician. <laughs> well, speaking of politicians, then... After Harvard, how did you get involved with the Carter administration? Because I believe you went on to be the, was it the head speechwriter for Walter, Walter Mondale as he yes. was vice president? Yeah. I, I went from uh, Harvard to Cambridge University, mm-hmm. where I uh, got a degree in English as a Marshall Scholar. And then from Cambridge, I went to Stanford, where I was the first person to get a PhD in the field of modern thought and literature. And uh, which is uh, now a program 40 years old, which has had obviously subsequent people. Uh, And with that degree, I had no idea what to do and uh, briefly worked at the Aspen Institute. Uh, But then someone I knew at Aspen, uh, who was the chancellor of the State University of New York, I worked in the area of education policy for Aspen. And the only, I knew nothing about it except I consumed a lot of education. So I thought that would be the, a field I could plausibly claim. Well, this guy, Ernie Boyer, when Jimmy Carter was elected, asked Ernie to be the top U.S. official in education, which was then the U.S. Commissioner of Education. During our time there, it became a separate cabinet-level department. So now the Secretary of Education which is what Ernie would have been if it were a couple of years later. And so I worked for him while I was there. Uh, I got to know uh, a, a wide range of people in the Carter administration, including people in the White House who were interested in making this 
Department of Education. And the chief person on that case was the vice president, Fritz Mondale. And uh, ultimately, uh, he had been looking for the speechwriter of his dreams. And one corpse after another had piled up uh, in that pursuit. And uh, I uh, naively said yes and, and took the job. And so I spent the rest uh, three years of the Carter administration being ultimately his chief speechwriter. And then when he ran for president, I was again his chief speechwriter, but I was also his deputy campaign manager. So the whole issues, research, uh, and media and messaging operation was was my part of the campaign. And so that's how I got into politics. I got out of it when we lost 49 states. (laughs) And so it it seemed like uh, uh, a a good moment to reassess things. And uh, having lived in Washington for eight years, I thought I would be open to experience, uh, to opportunity. And and all of us who had just been booted out of office were available. And um, my phone rang. And it was uh, someone uh, I knew from the political world who had also worked a little bit in the movie business. He had been, I forget what his title was, maybe associate producer on Gallipoli. And so he, he was known as the Hollywood guy in our world. And so he he knew someone who had called him looking for someone who might be part of the brand new Disney company because Disney, having been a family business since Walt founded it, was pretty moribund and was the uh, object of a hostile takeover by a group of Texas investors. And so they took it over and they knew they knew nothing about the movie business. And so uh, they chose as uh, their guy, the person who they would rely on, uh, a guy named Frank Wells, um, who at that point was the president of Warner Brothers. And so very successful guy. I mean, all the big stars worked at Warner's in those days. They paid top dollar and they got uh, uh, their money's worth in their in their star driven pictures. And uh, so uh, Frank told them that. So he was going to be he was the president, the chief uh, business officer and uh, strategist and so on. But they needed a chief creative person. And so Frank convinced them that the guy to get was to poach from Paramount. And so the head of Paramount had been Barry Diller, uh, who was ultimately poached by Fox. And Hmm. under him was Michael Eisner. Michael Eisner uh, uh, went to Paramount from ABC uh, where he was the head of primetime development and current shows, and working for him as uh, the heads of comedy were my roommate, Tom Werner, and Marcy Carson. So Michael Eisner was part of my world as friends of my old roommate's crowd. And so he became the chairman of uh, Disney, chairman of the board, And he chose Jeffrey Katzenberg uh, to be also from Paramount, who had worked for him there. And he said, come over with me. So these three guys had it to remake the the movie studio as as an entity and certainly remake the company. And so they basically uh, uh, replaced everybody and started from scratch. Uh, to make a modern movie company, and they needed bodies. And so some people were being recruited, especially from Paramount, that they knew. So, uh, uh, I mean, Ricardo Mestres, for example, had been working for Jeffrey at Paramount. Um, The business affairs uh, staff, uh, Helene Hahn, who ran business affairs, uh, had been 
doing that at Paramount. Uh, and uh, they were looking for uh, a head of marketing. And this Gallipoli guy got called by a consultant in marketing who wanted to know if he knew anyone. They suggested me. And so the call was a ridiculous call to me asking would I be interested in being president of marketing at Disney. This is uh, within three weeks of losing 49 (laughs) states as a political speechwriter. And so my answer was, of course. I mean, isn't it obvious that that's what I should do? But I figured who knew where this would go? And so um, I met, I, I didn't know Jeffrey personally, but he knew my crowd from college who was in Hollywood. Um, and uh, so I met him at a hotel in New York. Uh, and then I met Michael Eisner, who had come down to Washington for the Reagan inauguration on uh, a record-breaking cold day in Washington. And uh, so I met with both of them. And then what they figured out was what I really should be is part of the creative group that they were assembling in uh, production. And so uh, uh, they asked if that was interesting, and I said, why not? And so uh, uh, it uh, was a few weeks later that I came to L.A. and started my new life as what turned out to be a creative executive um, uh, at the new Disney company, uh, uh, a, a, a position which at Paramount had been known as a grunt burger. And so I became one of the brand new grunt burgers because everything had to be made new. And so the, the original group was uh, Ricardo, just Ricardo, uh, and then... Uh, uh, Jeffrey brought a guy named Rich Frank uh, in from another studio. I can't remember which one. And um, one or two other executives and uh, one or two other grunt burgers. And that was it. And in fact, our weekly meetings of everybody in the entire creative division for all feature films, including animation, could happen on the sectional couch in Jeffrey's office. And so it was from that that the thing began. And it grew as fast as they could make it grow. And uh, they had in the pipeline the old pictures left over from uh, Touchstone. The the first one that I remember being uh, given as a task to, to do was uh, a movie that was called Natty Gam. Hmm. And um, uh, so they, uh, uh, I was asked to see it. It was, had not been released and give it a new title. Um, and nothing I, because they thought it was a terrible title. <laughs> nothing I came up with uh, 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 succeeded. The only change was they released it as the journey of Natty Gam. Um, but I was a creative executive for seven, eight, nine months. And Jeffrey called me into, well, I can talk about that period in any way that you'd like. But the, the, the key change for me was that Jeffrey called me into his office and said six, nine months into it, okay, now you're a vice president. So that's how I became a, a vice president and remain so for the uh, uh, for the next so ninety eighty five six seven and eight was was when I was doing that and while I did that um, uh, uh, I guess the the key other executives who joined were David Hoberman who had been an agent at ICM uh, and also Jane Rosenthal I can't remember what Jane had been doing. Uh, but she became a vice president uh, in our group and ultimately uh, launched Robert De Niro's company, Tribeca, and has run Tribeca and the Tribeca Film Festival and all kinds of other related stuff ever since. Uh, so that was the group. And then there was 
the uh, the business affairs group, which was three women who were known as Mickey's angels. And um, uh, and then the other divisions had to be invented because there was no Disney Channel cable. There was no home video industry, let alone a division of Disney to exploit their intellectual property. It basically what had been happening was that uh, stuff had been put in cold storage for seven years and re-released. The animation division had to be completely rethought and essentially turned into the producer of Broadway musicals um, under Jeffrey's tutelage. Splash was in the pipeline. So that was one of the few uh, there. And um, uh, the first picture that was done completely under the new auspices uh, was, and, and I should say, the goal was to make Disney resemble Paramount and the other studios and have a huge development slate going. So it went from zero to about 70 or 80 pictures in development at one time. And we, the executives, were just de- assigned or grabbed or brought in those development projects. And so each had an equal number. And typically the odds would be that about 10% of your development projects would actually become movies. <laughs> I always try to, that was something we, we looked at when we launched the podcast was because Touchstone was founded by Ron W. Miller. Yes. And then Katzenberg comes on like within a year and so I try to always try to look at that delineation of which ones are the Ron W. Miller films and which ones are the Katzenberg right. films. Right. Because the Black Cauldron and uh, Basil of Baker Street were the two animation pictures which were in the pipeline. And um, uh, aside from Maddie Gann, I can't remember any other live action feature. There, um, Tron had already come out. I think mm-hmm. there were and Splash. Uh, uh, was, I think, just out. Um, so the first one that I know was Offbeat. And, ah, okay. And, I, uh, Offbeat. I had to go on eBay to get a VHS oh my gosh. copy because yes. it's, never, it's, never, it's never been released on DVD. So, yeah. Wow. I, <laughs> well, I'm surprised it's not on 8-Track <laughs> uh, or Betamax or something. Real to real, yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, well, can I know, ask you real quick? I was going to go back sure. real quick and mention that Touchstone put out a film in 1985 that I loved when I was a kid, and we 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 watched it for the show. Chad wasn't as big of a fan, but it's called My Science Project. Oh yeah, and, and I don't know if that was if that was something that, that, that Miller had already that, developed. That was yeah. in the pipeline. Yes. Okay, so I, yes. I, I want to believe that you that your creative team was responsible for that. I, I, well, I uh, I you know I'm glad that the prior Disney team did some things right and made the the studio worth uh, wanting, let alone the Disney brand, of course, which is global. Um, No, not my science project. It was Offbeat. And um, the producers of Offbeat were an agent named Harry Ufflin, who'd been working in the business forever. And so he had tons and tons of talent and relationships to, to bring to the table. And his partner was a guy named Joe Roth, who uh, ultimately became the chairman of Disney. But at that point, for eight years, he replaced Michael Eisner. Um, But at that point, he was just a producer. And so he was on the picture. And uh, they had this sweet, small script written by Mark Medoff, who uh, uh, was best known for a stage play that had become a movie called Children of a Lesser God. And so Mark Medoff wrote this sweet love story. And then um, Jeffrey uh, and Ricardo, who were basically the only other people there besides me and a couple of junior people, junior to me, uh, they convinced uh, those producers that the key to making this picture work was to have a really cheap breakout star that this would be the movie, but that you you knew they were on the brink, so you didn't have to pay them any money, and you get lots of options for their next pictures at the same low salary. That was this the touchstone was their, way, right? Yeah, that touchstone way. The, yeah. the saying was, 
you should wait outside the, uh, the door of the Betty Ford Clinic. And as people exit, then you sign them because they're at the worst and their lowest. <laughs> and so the guy they chose was a guy that they thought, because they had cast him in Beverly Hills Cop, was the kind of sleeper, sweet guy that everybody loved, Judge Reinhold. So uh, he was the star uh, of that movie. Uh, the cast is full of really amazing actors in very small roles. And that was because Harvey, Ke- uh, uh, Harvey Keitel, for example, that was because Harry Ufflin, the producer, uh, wanted to get his old gang together. And the editor of the picture, although I was such a greenhorn to the industry that I didn't realize it, the editor, Dee Dee Allen, is legendary. She edited like all of Scorsese's movies. I mean, just just an amazing person. Uh, and and so that was the picture I was tossed into uh, as Ricardo's number two on on the early pictures that I worked on. The uh, the pattern, all the pictures actually, there would be a, a senior executive and then a number two. So uh, I was being trained as a number two on several pictures. And so Offbeat was the first of them. It was a total uh, uh, nothing burger, and uh, which was great that no one paid attention to it so that when the next movie opened, which was Down and Out in Beverly Hills, which had... Richard Dreyfus and Bette Midler and Nick Nolte, all of whom were working for, as Jeffrey would put it, $1.86 because their careers were nowhere. When that movie became a runaway hit on its first weekend, that became the first movie of the new uh, crowd at, at Disney. And so it wasn't the first, but it was a huge hit. So why not claim that? as a sign of their genius. Yeah, we always like to refer to them as the king and queen of Touchstone, Richard Dreyfus and Bette Midler, based on the amount of movies they made for the studio. Yeah. Yes, and then one of the reasons is they did have them for $1.86 because they could sign them up to these uh, uh, kind of uh, punitive deals because no one else would hire them. And, and they always had these subsequent op- options on them. And then there was one other picture that I was for a while the executive on, uh, which became Three Men and a Baby. Oh, and okay. and the, uh, I worked with the author and director of that picture, Colleen Serreau, uh, uh, who uh, did not, it was a huge hit in France. She refused to sell it. And then Michael Eisner learned enough French to persuade her that uh, he would honor everything about the movie. And so uh, uh, she became the U.S. screenwriter. She did not speak English, but she was going to write the English script and the director. And my job, since I did speak French, uh, was I got assigned to French directors and And so uh, I became the executive on the film. And then what I had to do over time basically was to bring her to the understanding that no, she would not get to write the screenplay and no, she would not get to direct the picture. At which point, having delivered these messages, I was totally dead meat uh, uh, to her for any future use. And so I was replaced as the executive on the picture. And so, and then Leonard Nimoy was brought in to uh, uh, direct it. Okay. Yeah. And then speaking of legends like Leonard Nimoy, I saw that one of the films you mentioned was Tough Guys. Yes. With Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas. I was wondering, was that a hard sell to try to get them to come to Disney to make this live action film? It it was uh, purely David Hoberman. um, And uh, he had talent relationships with them. He loved those guys. And um, he also uh, was friends with a director named Jeff Canoe, who had directed Bert in a picture elsewhere. And so uh, he managed to give both of them enough reassurance 
uh, that they would be treated the way they were supposed to be. And I was David's number two on that picture. I did the notes, for example, and I watched the dailies. And and uh, the, my favorite thing about that picture, it's a, it's a tiny footnote. Uh, the, uh, one of the things you get to do is figure out what the start gift is for a picture on the first day of principal photography. And so you always wanted to figure out something which is perfect and unusual and people would be surprised and happy and touched by it. And so for that movie, I had engraved brass knuckles that said <laughs> uh, tough guys on them. And what I didn't realize at the time was that brass knuckles were almost illegal everywhere. <laughs> but I had found some place to buy them and get them engraved. And I subsequently, and so I kept them on my desk. And I subsequently learned that during pitch meetings, people would see me kind of fiddling with the brass knuckles and assume that I was one badass executive. <laughs> and I had no idea. For me, it was like a sentimental start gift that I had. But for, for them, it was, you know, you mess up, I'm going to take you out back. Uh, um, Did well, you see Hello Again? <laughs> You know what's so funny is I was just going to say um, one of the things we, th we do on our show is I try not to be too overly critical. If we don't like a film, we'll say, OK, it's not one of our favorites. I can see people may have liked it. I can tell you that Hello Again was one of our least favorite films <laughs> of that era, especially because the movie that preceded it is probably our favorite touchstone movie that you were ever involved with, or at least that came out during your time. And that's Can't Buy Me Love. Uh -huh. um, and so hello again was a very stark contrast i'm a big fan of gabriel byrne i was curious about this was his first uh, getting him over right really. yeah and, and um uh hello again i was assigned uh i had nothing to do with developing it <laughs> the the i mean i i did develop it it was uh a script by a wonderful novelist named susan isaacs and the director Frank Perry uh, is a, was a legendary director. His movie, David and Lisa, ran away with the Oscars many years before. And so, uh, you know, for, uh, to be able to work with Frank Perry and Shelley Long uh, was Jeffrey's idea because she was a TV star and would be cheap. And, mm -hmm. and then, and Frank was given basically no budget to make the movie. And so uh, you needed for leading men to find people you didn't have to pay. And so as Gabriel Byrne was, you know, just a, a, a picture that an agent had suggested. No one knew who he was. Uh, and and uh, the question is, you know, should we... Um, uh, would he have to learn an American accent? You know, how would you, how would you deal with that? Um, and uh, Shelley Long did score well working with Bette Midler in Outrageous Fortune. Did you like and see that? Oh yeah. That one, especially George Carlin. I thought he was. Yeah. He's yeah. So, so that was a good yeah. use of her. Hello again um, was sadly my first picture on my own. And and uh, uh, it was, you know, you, you, you always it's like a starter picture. <laughs> sure. Well, the next movie that you get that you sent me on the list is, was one of the ones that we wound up really, really enjoying. And that's Big Business. And I was curious. I think that's around the time that Bette Midler had actually signed a, a, a three picture deal with the studio. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, an overall deal. Her whole company was housed in the animation building where I was. The talent was on the first floor and the executives were on the third floor. And this is before the new uh, Seven Dwarfs building had gone up. And so uh, Bet was uh, someone you'd see all the time when she was not on the set making a picture. Big business really became, it came into existence because of the writers, um, uh, Pierce, Mark Rubel and Dory Pearson. And the problem with big business was that it was too confusing to read because, oh, sure. um, you know, the twins were different. And, and, and so in the end, uh, my solution 
in order to get the picture to get a green light uh, was to color code it. So when you saw a certain color, you would know who was the actual actor involved uh, and, and in, in the character. That turned out to be the key for my doing Noises Off, which is even more confusing because you have people within within roles, within roles in the story. The next picture that you worked on was The Good Mother. And I'm sure that had enough challenges on its own as far as the, with the controversial subject matter. Also looking at, we mentioned Gabriel Byrne, you've also cast another young actor. Liam Neeson, well known. who no one, also no one ever knew who he was. But the idea was, well, we cast Gabriel Byrne. I mean, you know, set aside the fact that the movie was not what, it, you wanted it to be. But so why don't we try that again? And who who's around? And so he was a complete unknown to everyone except maybe the casting director. And then how, the, you said that was probably assigned to you. So what challenges when you, when you knew of the subject matter? It was like, this is this is I got to do this film. now. Well, that and also there was uh, uh, someone senior in the Disney hierarchy who decided that he wanted to take a special interest in this project because he loved it so much. He was sure it had Academy Awards all over it, that every actress in Hollywood would want to play the role and that it would win Best Picture and, you know, and so on. And, and what uh, we found was that as soon as anyone read the script or a beautiful script based on the novel, they couldn't imagine wanting to play the role because it was so unappealing. I mean, it was about uh, a nice woman being punished for being a woman, basically, and and uh, very puritanical and weird. And, and so it was amazing when Diane Keaton uh, decided that she would do it. Uh, but then uh, this executive... Uh, wanted Diane Keaton to do what he wanted rather than what the director, Leonard Nimoy, wanted her to do because this executive thought that he would certainly get her an Academy Award. And so my job, my challenge was to give Leonard Nimoy this executive's notes and pretend they were my own. And I didn't do a very good job of that. Um, and and uh, I mean, often we'd be in dailies together and someone from from Leonard's office would be sitting in the dailies with us. And this executive, not realizing that, would just be saying one thing after another that you would not want your director to hear as as you're watching the dailies. And so the calls afterward would go to me and I would have to explain why. No, no, no. He didn't mean that. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's such a joker or, or or whatever. So that that besides the fact that, as Ricardo subsequently said, this movie has cancer. Oh, my God. And then, well, I, I guess, according to the list that you sent me, that you only have one more touchstone film and was that the result of having to go through what you went through on the good mother you said i'm i don't want to do this much anymore well the uh the three fugitives uh was was the next one that i did and that uh came out uh in 89 which was after i had converted to being a writer and producer but it was the result of maybe three years of work a lot of these pictures took a long time to get going. In this case, it was a remake of a French movie by the writer, uh, director of the French movie, Francis Weber, whom I was given the account of. Uh, and so I often went to Paris to spend time with him. We brought him to uh, uh, Disney for months at a time. Jeffrey would ask him to read all the scripts in production and give notes on them. Uh, so that the various directors would be called into meetings to hear Francis's notes and their reaction is, who's this? And, and, you know, and, and, and who's paying for this? I am. And uh, Francis is in France, a God. Um, but what it convinced me watching Francis uh, 
uh, be the, the toast of France and also uh, uh, courted so assiduously by Disney and having worked with writers and producers for four years, I decided that I wanted to be one of them, uh, not an executive doing what I was doing. And so I begged Jeffrey for maybe six months and he finally said, okay. And so he let me convert from being an executive to having an overall deal at the studio, uh, which is then what I did for the next seven, eight years. And then in uh, 90 to 92 was those two years was when I wrote and were produced both Noises Off and The Distinguished Gentleman. And they were basically happening at the same time. So a two-year cycle to get uh, from script to release uh, was pretty good. And I had two of them simultaneously. And then I began an adventure in which every subsequent year I was uh, assigned to a project which was already greenlit, a must-make movie. And all it needed was a script. (laughs) And so so, uh, the the first one well, hold on. Can we, can we go back a little bit? I, sure. I, I, I am a huge Distinguished Gentleman fan. Right. Um, I, I saw it. I don't know if it was in the theater or at least when it first hit home video. When we launched out of Touchstone, I was asked to be a guest on another podcast. And the guy said, pick a Hollywood picture instead of a Touchstone picture. And I chose Distinguished Gentleman. Oh, great. Because I am a huge fan of Jonathan Lynn. Um, I had the great pleasure. I met him at a screening at, at the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. And I had a whole bunch of Jonathan Lynn films on DVD. And I used to always try to get somebody to, I always try to try to get the talent to autograph them if they did Q&As at these screenings. And unfortunately, the only DVD that I had of his that had his name on the front was my cousin Vinny. And he joked with me. I said, it's the only one that's got your name. And he said, you know, I should really talk to my agent, you know, because I was thinking Distinguished Gentleman is one of those movies that I wish more people knew about. And I'm wondering, like, especially when I found out, because I, I found out who you were when I looked at Noises Off. So then it was like, well, that makes sense that you wrote Distinguished Gentleman. You came from Washington. And I'm curious about how much you drew on that experience. And then also Chad had joked with us during our episode that do you think that Washington has changed in 30 years? And it seemed, that movie seems so prescient. Uh, it, it's funny. I did uh, a couple of weeks ago a, um, a film club uh, uh, Zoom uh, with uh, uh, a, a political group. And uh, it was a kind of post-screening chat. And I was thrilled to find that the picture has fans. I mean, real uh, diehard, hardcore fans. That's something that's gratified me. And through the years, I have gotten uh, uh, letters from high school teachers saying, I use this to teach what politics in Washington is really about. Uh, And and various people uh, in uh, politics tell me, that nothing has changed. Uh, So I set out to write, um, A, a movie that would get Eddie Murphy. And then what would that be? And so Eddie goes to Washington. Mr. Murphy goes to Washington. But backwards was the idea. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Jimmy Stewart is this naive who believes that government is a noble thing. And then... Uh, uh, ultimately the scales fall from his eyes and he realizes how deeply corrupt it it all is. And so in this case, Eddie Murphy goes to Washington because it's corrupt. He is a con man and that's where the money is. And in, in, when he was a small time con man in Florida, he was being arrested. But in Washington, when you do the same thing, it's legal and they call you a distinguished gentleman. So that was the idea. Have him come to Washington corrupt. And the arc of the story is that he ultimately becomes a good guy working on behalf of the people. And uh, I it was a point of pride for me that every single thing in it was uh, that alleged to be factual was actually factual. All the corruption, everything that they did, 
all the packs they set up and phony foundations and and scams with book buying and you name it was all true, real and legal. And so it was a kind of encyclopedia of corruption and an argument for campaign finance reform. Uh, Warren Beatty told me that Bulwark, uh, he was inspired to do that uh, by that movie uh, because he wanted to also show how how corrupt corrupting Washington was from from an insider perspective. So I just uh, crammed it with everything that I could think of at that point that was making me angry and uh, using it in a way as like a, a, a cry from the heart for change and reform. And uh, uh, Johnny became the director uh, because uh, he was not known in my Disney world uh, except as the My Cousin Vinny director. And, and so that was fine because it was a hit. I mean, basically, Eddie, in the end, trusted my cousin Vinny, uh, that the man knew how to direct comedy because uh, uh, his his British political stuff did not uh, uh, argue. I mean, Eddie was used to having uh, the directors he had when he was at Paramount. So it was an unusual uh, match. But I was I was thrilled that uh, he did it. Yeah. And he I also remember he he played the vicar in Three Men and a Little Lady. Yes. Uh, it, it was kind of interesting to see him come back around. I yes. did see for the distinguished gentleman, you're listed as an executive producer. And I'm really hoping yes. you, had, you had something to do with assembling that cast because that cast is. Famous. Oh, I was involved in every aspect of that picture. I was I was yeah. truly I mean, Actually, the person who has a producer credit was actually only nominally the producer. They had uh, uh, made an overall deal with him and needed to, to let write off the amount of money they were giving him on some picture. And so uh, there was my picture. And so they just put him on it uh, and a lovely man, but had absolutely nothing to do with the making of the movie. Um, So I, I was uh, involved in every way a producer of a picture would be, which means I was on the set on location Every day I was involved in all the casting. I was involved in uh, uh, all the editing, all the test screenings, you name it. There was not an aspect of that picture that uh, uh, I was I was not part of. Did you get everybody you want? Because, I mean, you got James Garner, you got Kevin McCarthy. Well, I mean, it was Lane Smith. Yeah, it was hard to convince them to pay James Garner's fee because it's such a small role. But I thought it was so uh, 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 such an important role uh, that, I mean, Jonathan wanted him and it seemed to me worth worth paying that. I mean, they were paying plenty for Eddie already. Um, uh, uh, Half a dozen other quite small roles uh, are all just exquisitely cast. I mean, just for an example, uh, in there's a scene, a very brief scene in an elevator in the Capitol and the elevator operator, that is Della Reese, um, mm. a, 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 you know, a great singer and, and actress, uh, just, just with a little cameo there. Uh, Joe Don Baker. Um, and uh, I have a cameo in it. I was going to ask you how about the character of Ned. Yeah. How did that Ned Grable. Well, um, Jonathan said, uh, would you like a little part? You know, he thought it would be a a nice, sweet thing to do. And so I said, yes, I would. And the one I would like, I mean, I might have asked to be a congressman or, you know, in a brief scene or something. But the part I asked for was that one for one particular reason, which I had learned in my time as an executive, that the one thing that was most likely to happen with any scene in any movie is that it would be cut. And so I chose a plot point. You cannot have that movie and story be told without that. It makes no sense at all. You would have to reshoot or add something uh, to fill it in. So, I mean, it may be 40 seconds long, 
But it it's it, the moment when Eddie understands why name recognition can be what would get him to uh, play the big con and get elected under false pretenses. And so uh, it was great fun uh, to do it. I also, uh, I convinced Nina Totenberg uh, to play a reporter. I don't know if you remember, there's there at the, the election night um, uh, when Eddie wins, you first learn it by a shot of on a TV news set. And the reporter is saying, you know, it's very strange coming in from Florida. These returns are completely unknown. And the person we cast is uh, the dean of Supreme Court correspondence for NPR. I mean, she she's the absolute best known number one Supreme Court reporter, Nina Totenberg. And so she was a buddy of mine. And so she she played that role as a nice little cameo. You should be proud of that movie. I hope you get your nominal residual checks in the mail and all that. But uh, I, yeah. I, I, I am proud of it because uh, uh, it. I, I for this uh, event I mentioned that I just did a few weeks ago, I saw it again. It had been a while, and I just felt great about what it was and what it still is. So um, I'm 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 waiting for it to be discovered. No, I want to. Talk yeah. about Distinguished Gentlemen real quick, because when we discussed it on the show, you know, in this age that we're in now with Hollywood remaking everything, I said, you don't need to remake this film because you can just release it as is. Because I think everything, as we as you touched on earlier, everything that's there is still going on today. So how do you feel? You know, if someone came to you and said, we want to remake Distinguished Gentlemen, what would your thoughts be? Well, it's actually happened. <laughs> and um, I loved the concept uh and the person who approached me is kenya barris um uh who is a phenomenally talented guy who used to be at abc with blackish uh and uh, then uh and uh, mixedish and uh is at netflix and so he has a concept for uh remaking it uh, in present day with a couple of uh, key switches and a very interesting casting idea. And rather than say what it is, uh, I, I'm just, I'll leave it as a tease. But uh, I was very enthusiastic and who knows, maybe it'll happen. That's great news. Yeah, I would love to see that. Um, well, unfortunately, your time comes to an end. I see that you got a 12-year run you, you leave Disney around 1996. Basically, if you could explain to the to the listeners what what it is you're doing now. I know that you're involved with the Norman Lear Center at USC, and so and it's just some fascinating work involving the cross section of of politics and entertainment and media and pop culture. So I'll end with that, Marty. You have the floor. Tell, talk about what you're doing now. Thank you. Well, I I went to USC to become associate dean of the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. And while I was there, uh, the thought occurred to me that uh, entertainment had become the, the most important force in every aspect of life, including, for example, politics and journalism, but even uh, areas like education and religion and commerce and on and on. And so I wanted to do research uh, about how that was happening. And I also wondered if you could use that as a force for good. And so I started a center to ask, what is the impact of media and how can you marshal media for pro-social ends? And Norman Lear, who was an old friend of mine, so, so much liked that work that he gave me a huge gift to, to USC, and I said, we'll only accept this if you let us name this work after you, because your own work from All in the Family on is about taking social issues on and using it to make the world a better place and combating prejudice and all kinds of other uh, uh, hot-button things. And uh, he had never given his name to anything. He said yes. And so what I began doing now over 20 years ago, was running this research center. 
And we have now uh, done dozens and dozens of different projects and research studies in which we actually have measured quantitatively the impact on audiences of the television and the, and the feature films and the documentaries that they see. We analyze content. We can tell you how things are depicted. We've worked with lots and lots of advocacy organizations. For example, in the last couple of years, we worked with the Color of Change, which is the Black Lives Matters foundation side, to ask how are Black people depicted in cop shows. Uh, we've worked with Define American, which is an immigrant organization, to ask how are immigrants depicted in pictures. And the area in which we've done most work, which I'm most proud of, and right now is more relevant than ever, is the work we've done in public health. Because the first grant that I got was from the Centers for Disease Control. And I became, the Lear Center became, the CDC's office in Hollywood. And so what we have done for the last 20 plus years is anyone writing a script and also even people in you know, video games and other entertainment media, if they have a question about anything involving health and they want an expert, they don't have an expert, they don't have any money for it, but they want to get it right. They don't want to make it up because they understand that when audiences see health depicted in television shows, for example, they think it's true. They, they think the information a doctor says was not made up by some writer or some writer who listened to someone's sister-in-law, uh, but that instead it could be frictionless and free for a writer to get it right. So for 20 years, we have hooked up Hollywood writers and we work inside the Writers Guild West and inside the Writers Guild East. We have hooked them up with thousands and thousands of experts on every subject you can imagine in the general world of health, including climate change and arms control and, and uh, uh, every issue in disease that the CDC deals with. And we hook them up with the best experts in the world to give them free consulting advice so they can get it right. And what we've discovered is that when shows do this, we can measure the impact on audiences. If you, you know, on 90210, we worked on a, 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 a multi-episode uh, story arc one season about the BRCA gene, the breast cancer gene. And what we learned was that the people, the audience who saw that learned stuff and they actually did stuff like ask their parents about the BRCA gene and maybe it was in their family or got tested for it. And so these things actually have an impact. And I have story after story about how various TV shows have saved people's lives because there was an episode about some weird disease uh, or wow. the, the day after on, um, I forget the name of the series. It's, um, uh, it, it's, it was a drama uh, in which the lead characters, uh, it's, it's a gay couple, and they're deciding to consummate their relationship. And so one decides to get tested, and the other, and, and is afraid to, and there's a conversation about why. And then he finally goes and gets tested. And then the next morning in New York, clinics giving free HIV tests showed a spike in people walking in to ask for tests because they had seen that episode the night before. So that's the kind of work that's at the centerpiece of what we're doing. And as you can imagine, COVID is front and center right now, as is uh, all the systemic racism and social determinants like poverty and housing and all the other issues which have made COVID uh, have an unequal impact on different parts of society, that work we are vigorously pushing ahead with, as well as uh, on questions like what are the best arguments for uh, uh, persuading people to uh, get vaccinated. 
Oh, that's that's tremendous. I, I you know, that's I'm so proud of that. I, I really think that's wonderful. And I wish you the best of luck moving well, forward. Thank you. I'll just do a, a, a plug for it. The program of ours that does that is called Hollywood Health and Society. And it has a vibrant uh, website. We give annual awards. We've done red carpet awards sentinel for health which now have become a tradition in the industry people are really proud of it so we have made the pride in being accurate and doing good something that networks and writers and studios want to happen absolutely so hollywood health and society hollywood it's health. google it it's got a wonderful website you'll be quite amazed what you see is there anything else I can have you promote or plug before we say goodbye? <laughs> I just want to make sure. I mean, you're doing so many things. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that because I don't want to garble my message. Well, that, that's good. I, I cannot thank you enough. This has been incredibly enlightening. It was everything that I had hoped for when I wanted to talk to somebody who had worked during those glory years of Touchstone. And then you add in the Carter administration stuff and also the great work that you're doing now. You truly are a distinguished gentleman, Mr. Uh, well, thank I you. Say so. Thank you very much. And I'm, I'm thrilled that you discovered and like that movie. It's, it's something I'm really proud of. All right. Thank you for being on the show, sir. Thank you. All the best. Out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool. Thank you. Good night.